As the population ages, hip surgery will likely become a more common surgery. How does hip surgery differ today than in the past? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. William Hozak. Dr. Hozak is a professor of orthopedics at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and Rothman Institute of Orthopedics. Welcome, Dr. Hozak. Very happy to be here. Today we are discussing a hip replacement update. Dr. Hozak, what are the typical causes for the reason a patient would require a hip replacement? Overwhelmingly, the number one cause is osteoarthritis or degenerative arthritis of the hip. The other causes hip dysplasia, that is, underforming of the hip joint at birth, avascular necrosis related to things like steroid use or alcohol use, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, and you can go on on and on, are a small percentage of the total. But the overwhelming majority is osteoarthritis. What's the relationship of activity and sports to the development of severe disabling osteoarthritis? In the hip joint, it's actually uncommon to have an association. Why is that, sir? If you take the knee joint where people, football players or soccer players uh, or other athletes have injuries to the meniscus or the ligaments like the anterior cruciate ligament or otherwise, damage to those ligaments will lead to instability in the joint and ultimately arthritis in the knee. That type of thing doesn't really happen in the hip joint. It's very rare to see people dislocate their hip. I mean, that has happened, and we've all seen that happen. But in active sports, it's very uncommon to see people develop arthritis because of the activity. Why do we see more and more disabling hip osteoarthritis? Is it because we're just living longer and more active? I don't know that we have the answer entirely, but there are a couple of possibilities, a couple of reasons. I think we're identifying that a lot of people are born with subtle abnormalities of the anatomy of the hip joint. What do you mean by that, sir? Well, people that are born with the hip dislocation, which is very much uncommon nowadays with the proper pediatric care we have, but subtle, slight malformations of the hip joint, mild dysplasia. There are other types of deformities where the acetabulum or the socket of the hip joint is rotated abnormally. We call it retroversion of the acetabulum. These types of abnormalities are subtle in nature. They don't really influence patient activity or function or any athletic thing, but because of the abnormal mechanics, ultimately lead to early failure of the joint and arthritis. Are there any predictive factors that you see in patients that you think, as an orthopedic surgeon, they're going to need a hip replacement? Well, that's a new field these days, and it's probably worth another discussion at another time, but this is a field where we do preventive surgery to reorient the anatomy of the acetabulum, the femur, to prevent the development of arthritis. Could you expand upon that, sir? Well, these are people who come in with mild groin pain and some limitation of motion who, on x-ray, if you look at it, superficially, you'll notice nothing in normal x-ray. Yet further investigation with appropriate testing can lead to the understanding that these patients have a mechanical abnormality there that could respond to a osteotomy that is cutting of the bone and reorienting or some other less invasive type procedure to minimize the symptoms and, and hopefully reduce the chance of developing arthritis in the future. But what testing is involved here? 
Again, this is the kind of thing where, as a primary care physician, you should deal with the patient's symptoms, such as pain in the groin, loss of range of motion. Those are types of things that can be easily discovered in, the, in an office without x-rays, because the x-rays often are normal. And if these patients have these symptoms, then early referral to an orthopedic surgeon can further elucidate the cause. And these surgeons should have specialty in hip surgery, because it requires special types of MRI tests with and without injections. I would not suggest to the primary care doc that they order these tests because they should see the orthopedic specialist first before they do so. When you see a patient who comes in with a cane and is clearly having hip pain, when do you decide it's time to do a hip replacement versus conservative management? It is actually a very easy decision. The patient essentially asks for the operation. What they say to me is they have had this pain for, you know, five or six years. They can't do what they want to do. They have trouble putting on their shoes. They have trouble getting dressed. They have trouble working. They have trouble playing golf or exercising. They just don't enjoy their quality of life anymore. So when they say that to me, it's a very easy decision to recommend hip replacement. Well, how do you determine in those patients that they're just not complaining to you and that you really should seriously consider doing a hip replacement on them? Well, you know, in addition to the clinical symptoms that the patient states, clearly they have to have an x-ray showing arthritis, and the examination of the hip would be, again, specific for the hip joint. But those are only secondary information. The primary determinant of the need, given that they do have hip arthritis, is their quality of life. Is that a decision that you are able to make pretty quickly upon evaluating the patient? Actually, yes. And when they ask you initially should I have surgery, do you straight away respond that they should? No. As a surgeon, that's obviously the answer that I've been trained to give. But for the most <laughs> part, we, I really let the patient decide. I say, look, what is it that you can't do these days? And we go through all the lists of things that they can't do. And it very quickly becomes obvious to the patient that their window of activity is very small. And they say, you know, you're right. I'm, I'm not able to do the things I want to do, and I really want to get this thing changed. My life needs to be changed. And I say, well, if we do the hip replacement, we can change it. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM157. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, professor of surgery at Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. William Hozak, professor of orthopedics at the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and Rothman Institute of Orthopedics. Today we are discussing hip replacement update. Dr. Hozak, what's different about hip replacements now than compared with years ago? interesting question is a lot of things are the same and many things have changed. And for example, the operation still worked well in the past and it works just well now. It has the same potential complications and there's a list of thousands of things that theoretically could go wrong and it has those same potential complications now. But what's changed now is that the results are more predictable because we have developed systems of how we do the surgery. We've developed an area of expertise of hip surgery so that we can make the operation more predictable and the complication risk lower. The recovery periods are quicker. The anesthesia techniques are safer and the pain management techniques are vastly improved. Our attitude about recovery has changed. We used to say to the patient, no, you just have to wait until you heal up and then you can start doing things. Nowadays, we get patients up the same day as the operation and back to work within a week or less than a week after surgery. So, Well, how long do they have to stay in the hospital? It varies from 
surgeon to surgeon, and there's no wrong time. And, for example, in my practice, I will do the surgery on a Monday, for example, and the patients will go home Wednesday afternoon or Thursday morning. And will they be walking without any assistance? At the time they are discharged, they're usually walking with either a, a crutches or a cane or a walker. They'll go home and they'll continue to uh, rehabilitate over the next several months. And when could they put full weight bearing? Most surgeons nowadays let patients weight bear as tolerated from the beginning, but they protect some of the hip muscles by using crutches, canes, walkers. So the crutches or canes and walkers are used to allow the muscles to heal, but the bones can accept full weight bearing from the beginning. Do these patients undergo physical therapy postoperatively? Every time the patient gets out of bed and moves around, they're doing physical therapy. So the more they do, the more therapy they're getting. We also provide formal physical therapy sessions, but these become less important as the patient does more. If these patients are athletic, when do you allow them to resume athletic activities? Again, it depends on the level of fitness that it requires and coordination. The healing time for sports is more related to muscle healing, and coordination, and specifically coordination. And that's what takes the longest time after hip replacement. And that varies from patient to patient. But the things like golf can happen in four to six weeks, and tennis can be two to three months. But very vigorous things can take up to six months or eight months after the surgery. Now, it probably is not uncommon when you have patients with severe bilateral disease and you suspect that they will need bilateral hip replacements how do you stage these in terms of timing? Most of the patients I see with both hips affected equally severely will get them done at the same time under one anesthesia. For example, if somebody has a bad coronary condition or a heart condition, they're probably not the best candidates to have both hips done at the same time because of the stress of the surgery may precipitate an adverse event. Most of the patients who have both hips affected are often very young, and so I will do most of them at one sitting. We'll do one anesthesia, both hips at the same time, and they'll be discharged home in three days. Does that significantly compromise their ability to ambulate, not having one, so to speak, good leg? Actually, no. That With the pain management techniques that we have, they're relatively mobile quickly. I think what they notice the most, the patient notices the most, is that it just takes a bit more time to get their overall strength back. It's physiologically more stressful to have both done at the same time, so they feel tireder for you know, a month after surgery than somebody who just has one hip done. You know, a question that many non-surgeons are curious about is, what is actually involved in a hip replacement surgery? What exactly are you doing? The operation is a series of steps done in the right order, and executed that way is a very nice operation that we can done in a short period of time. But after we make the skin incision, we go down to the muscle layers. There are a variety of different ways of getting down to the hip joint from the back, from the side, from the front, all of which work very, very well. And as of this time, no one way is better than the other. I think it's more dependent on the surgeon's experience than it is on the actual approach. Once you get down to the hip joint, the bones are exposed, and the femoral head, which is attached to the femur through the neck, is osteotomized or cut and removed. The acetabulum is exposed. The acetabulum is the pelvis side of the hip joint. That's exposed, and using sort of hemispherical cheese graters, the acetabulum is reamed down to good bone quality, and an uncemented titanium prosthesis is impacted in place. It's a circular prosthesis. 
It's held in place for the most part just by the press fit that we create by under-reaming. And then a bearing is placed into that shell. It can be a ceramic bearing, a metal bearing, or a polyethylene bearing, all of which work very well. And then on the femoral side, a titanium stem is impacted into the femur, inside the bone, inside the marrow, attached to a femoral head. And again, of course, we try different shapes and sizes and lengths to get the mechanics of the hip joint, the offset, that is the distance from the hip center, the leg length correct, the hip stability correct, and choose the best combination that we feel is appropriate, and then that's the end of the operation. We close up the incision and put on the dressing. I want to thank Dr. William Hozak, who has been our guest. We have been discussing hip replacement update. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to check out our website at www.reachmd.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.